0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Um, today, I would like to continue on what the last podcast started to talk about. Um, I realized that there was another huge section that needed to go under part one, but I did want to keep those two sections uh, separate uh, because they they deal in different problems. Uh, the first uh, two that I dealt with last time deal with uh, problematic ideas uh that the Enlightenment came up with. Uh, the one I, de- I want to deal with today is going to deal with uh, problems that the Enlightenment reveals, um, things that uh, once Enlightenment comes along you you sort of have this other thing to take into consideration. Um, so this is sort of uh, the Enlightenment under attack 1.5. Uh, part 2 will start to go into some of the uh, uh, ideals of the Enlightenment that weren't fully realized. Uh, But here I want to go into one of the problems that the Enlightenment reveals. One of the things about the Enlightenment is it starts to give the picture of a universe as a clockwork universe. Uh, The laws of physics are things that can start to be described mathematically. The motion of the planets, uh, the motions of everything. Uh, starts to fall under mathematical description. Well one of the things that this starts to put into the back of people's heads is that if uh, all of the physical objects can be described mathematically and predicted what they're going to do uh, and they act they have to act upon these rules. uh, Humans are physical objects in the world uh, which means even though we may be more complex Uh, There was the idea that eventually mathematics could explain everything about the way we think uh, and what we're going to do. Now, if all of this is able to be described mathematically, that means the concept of free will is just an illusion. We don't have any. Um, If we are simply moving down a path that, uh, like any other physical object that we had to go, um, then we're not actually able to make any decisions. Uh, no more than if you drop a, a, a rock, if it has a decision, if it wants to fall straight down or if it wants to fly up into the air. So it starts to create this problem for people of free will and determinism. And it starts to challenge that. Uh, and there are two uh, sides that start to try to fight against this. Uh, One side is the sort of secular attack against this. Um, The secular attack is basically saying if there's no free will, then the entire concept of freedom can be thrown out the window. Uh, If we don't have free will, we're not free, uh, then we are no more than machines. So part of the secularist attack on determinism is the desire to sort of open up the space for uh, freedom freedom of choice. You know, are we able to actually choose things or are we just running down the pads we were programmed to? On the religious side, uh, the starts to bring into uh, question the idea of God. A lot of the religious thinkers saw the enlightenment and the clockwork universe as something that would eventually uh, push the idea of God out of the equation altogether. After all of everything is explainable by mathematical necessity, uh, there's no need in that system for God. Um, There's also, since there's no free will, as the secular uh, philosophers uh, addressed, uh, that means the entire concept of sin is completely meaningless. Uh, The sinner and the saint, neither one of them would have any ability to be evil or to be good because they are simply automations that are running the program that they had no choice but to run. So it starts to bring up a lot of problems for freedom, uh, for the existence of God, and for the idea of uh, sin and responsibility for uh, people's actions. Um, Some of the earlier philosophers that start to uh, address this, the first one is Descartes. Um, Rene Descartes, uh, wants to build a system that is based on something he can't doubt. Uh, he, he, he embraces skepticism and he wants to say, what is it that I, that, that there is that I cannot doubt. Uh, and he, you know, says he can doubt his, uh, perceptions. They may be illusions the same way when you have a dream. Um, he can doubt if other people exist Uh, He can doubt everything uh, except for one thing because he realizes that he can't doubt that he's thinking. Um, Because even the the fact of doubting that you're thinking, doubting is a type of thinking. So Descartes kind of comes up with the solution of uh, his solid foundation he's going to build the world back up on is, I think, therefore I am. Now the problem with this is that if that's all you can prove is that you exist because you think, you still have no connection to the outside world. And one of the things that Descartes does is he starts to um, come up with these logical arguments and, and basically comes to the conclusion that it's God is what allows him to have access to the outside world. God is what allows him not to be mistaken about all of his sensations. So he sort of has to make a leap from something that he can solidly prove, uh, more or less to something he would like to be true, uh, because there is no proof and no disproof for the existence of God that really holds up to scrutiny. Uh, All of the proofs for God eventually fall apart under scrutiny, and all of the arguments against the existence of God also fall apart under scrutiny. So this is one of those things where belief or non-belief, there has to be somewhat of a leap there. And so he does have to take this leap in order to get the real world is actually real. Um, Barclay also sort of takes this radical doubt and talks about how his senses can be doubted. And and Barclay is also a uh, religious man. He puts the idea that everything could be uh, doubted um, so that he has to trust that God would not allow this. And since the physical world can completely be doubted, uh, Barclay kind of takes the stance that the only world that is real, the real and true world, is the world of ideas. And the external world is simply uh, the manifestation of those ideas. Um, The ideas uh, are what make things real. And for Barclay, uh, the existence of God is the reason that things are still real, even when we don't perceive them. You know, he has the idea that if no one is perceiving it, you, know, is something actually happening? is his, one of his famous quotes as if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? And he comes up with the, the solution that no, it doesn't, because sound is simply the way your uh, brain, your ear, translates the vibrations in the air into something meaningful. And so for him, for the world to have any permanence, um, he decides that everything is an idea in the mind of God. Now Hume comes along, and Hume is also a skeptic, uh, but more on the uh, side of a secular skeptic. Uh, Hume is a non-religious thinker. So one of the things that Hume does is, again, applies this radical doubt, and he applies doubt to the methods of uh, of of the Enlightenment. Uh, Ideas like cause and effect. Ideas like inductive logic. Um, He he starts to draw um, doubt over those. Uh, One of his arguments against inductive logic is that we have no way of proving just because things happened a certain way in the past that they will always happen that way. Uh, There is some basis for this and Uh, Kind of one of the arguments that is given is the argument of the turkey. The turkey comes out every day of the house and uh, gets fed by the farmer. And this happens day after day after day uh, for hundreds of days. And eventually the turkey comes out expecting, because he's always came out and been fed, that I'm going to come outside and be fed. Well, it's the day before Thanksgiving and he gets his head chopped off. So there's the idea that just because things have always happened and we have sort of pictured this as, well, they will always continue to happen, we have no ability to prove that this is true. Now Kant comes along after Hume and sort of takes this a little further. Um, Kant looks at uh, reason and rationality uh, and holds it all up to skepticism, and Kant has a very particular reason for doing this. Um, Kant's issue is that if he cannot overthrow uh, the Enlightenment, if he cannot throw reason and logic as being our way of understanding the world, uh, he feels that these things will displace faith. And so Kant, um, in his arguments, uh, looks at all of the arguments of reason and kind of puts it down to our only access to the world is through our senses, our sight, our smell, our touch, uh, which those sensations are then translated in the brain into something meaningful. Well, since we have between ourselves and the actual objects of reality, this um, filter that we cannot get through, uh, his argument is that we can never actually know those things out there. Uh, that the external world is is more or less just the way it is because of the way our brain works, because of the way we process information. So his argument is that we do not have any access to the external world, therefore science, um, logic, experimentation, all of these things are things that we can never know for certain, and so we can doubt them. Uh, Kant, in the place of that, um, wants to restore faith. He says that since everything out there we have no actual access to, the only real way to the truth is through faith. Now, the funny thing with Kant is with pretty much every other philosopher is that when they want to disprove another side, they go through a lot of uh, arguments and a lot of demonstrations of why the other side is wrong, and then they sort of come up with the idea of, aha, therefore my side is right. Now anyone who's studied logic knows that this is a textbook example of the either-or fallacy. Um, Just because you disprove one side does not mean you've proven the other. Uh, You could disprove one side 100% that there is no possibility that other side is correct. And yet, if you haven't done the work to prove that your side is correct, your side may be equally as wrong. Because the correct answer may be a third answer, or a fourth answer, or a fifth answer. Uh, or it could be something that is a combination of the first two answers. So he kind of falls under the either-or fallacy. But Kant really opens the door um in philosophy for sort of this embrace of irrationality. Uh, since we can throw doubt uh onto everything about the Enlightenment thinking, all of the scientific methods can be doubted, um, you have thinkers that are both uh secular and religious who kind of take this and run with it. And and you sort of start to get these philosophies developing uh, through the 1800s, the 1900s, and into the present, where um, you start to get uh, very much a sense of everything is relative. Uh, There's no such thing as truth. All truth is relative to whoever uh, chooses to say it. So that one person's uh, faith is just as valid and true as another person's science. Uh, and so when you are into this, you're sort of in a uh, a world where nothing uh, by one side will constitute believable evidence by the other side. And so the two are hopelessly trapped into their own ways of thinking. Uh, there's no proof you could present on the one side that uh, will disprove faith, therefore Um, there is no reason to even consider the other side. There is no proof, since we don't have 100% uh, proof that we have access to the outside world, uh, therefore we can dismiss everything that science uh, would tell us. So it kind of sets up a problem that gets worse and worse into the 20th century and into the 21st century. Uh, And you can even see this playing out in politics. You know, you have one side citing facts and the other side saying, no, there's alternative facts. Um, And this is the belief that, well, what the one side wants to be true is just as valid as what the other side can prove. And this is done on both sides. Um, People tend to look to facts uh, when they support what they want to believe and kind of dismiss them when they don't support. Uh, This leads to Very poor communication of ideas. This leads to sort of a paralysis where people are polarized uh, into their own way of thinking uh, and refusing to budge. So, this is one of the problems that the Enlightenment doesn't, isn't, is caused indirectly by Enlightenment thinking. This idea of we live in a determinist universe, and so in order to deal with that, most people have, uh, either from religious or secular reasons, decided to deny that and um, have have therefore made it uh, difficult for the use of evidence of any kind. Okay, I wanted to break that one off there. Uh, And next time I will go into part two. Part two will be some of the uh, ideas that come up in the Enlightenment that are never really fully put into realization. Um, I hope all of you are staying safe. I hope all of you are doing well, and I will talk to you soon.